Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Sean Godsell, one of Australia's most venerated and accomplished architects. Since founding his small practice in Melbourne in 1994, Sean's work and ideas have achieved international recognition. His work has been published in El Croque, exhibited in the Venice Biennale, and awarded a papal silver medal. Most recently, Sean was the recipient of the Australian Institute of Architects gold medal and toured the country presenting a talk on his works, career, and philosophy. In this episode, Sean and I discussed why he believes his small practice structure, currently just himself and associate director Hayley Franklin, allows him to stay closer to the work and achieve the best design outcome. Why Sean believes committed clients will find their way to him without the need for heavy-handed marketing and PR, even though it can sometimes mean having to wait for the phone to ring. We looked at how the profession has become too obsessed with creating good-looking images for Instagram and why this form of feedback can lead architects off in the wrong direction. Sean shared how he's developed a design methodology where his clients are heavily involved in their project from day one, rather than the stereotype of the architect who imposes their ideas onto the client. And finally, Sean explained how viewing each project as an opportunity to improve on the ideas in the last has led to a consistent quality to his buildings. And he shares his response to the popular argument that architects should avoid having any sort of recognisable signature or style in their work. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean Godsell. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, I saw you speak in Perth as part of your gold medal tour and you raised some really just interesting points, I guess, about the profession more broadly and how architects uh, are putting their work out into the world, where their ideas come from. And seeing all of that, it just made me so keen to get you on because you had some really just great insights, I think, into architecture and developing a career as an architect over a long time span, which I think is kind of an interesting angle on this. But I thought we'd just start by maybe looking at initially the structure of your practice, which was one of the things that really surprised me the most in hearing you speak was that I I believe, am I correct? Is it you and Hayley Franklin? Is it just a two-person studio? Pretty much. I mean, occasionally we call on colleagues to help us depending on workload and specific tasks 
but typically it's just the two of us. And that structure and that and that size, that's obviously a very conscious decision to kind of generally keep the studio smaller. Could you maybe just give me a little bit of a background on your thinking about that? Was that something that early on in your career, uh, in, in starting your practice, you you decided, okay, this was about the ideal size for us to be? Or what, what's kind of the thinking behind that? Because I imagine, you know, if you wanted to be the 30, 40, 50, 150 person practice over the span of the life of your practice, I think you would have been able to obviously get up there. So um, just maybe your thinking on, on, on the size of the practice and why you've chosen to go that route. Uh, I think... You know, small is small is potent. As a two-person operation, we get a huge amount done. Um, we have have days where we don't even speak with one another, and an awful lot gets done. So there's a an efficiency associated with small. When when we want to do big, we partner up. You know, we form a joint venture with big so that we bring our particular skill base to, to the, um, the, the large engine firms and, and combined that makes a sort of powerful entity. The problem with bigger offices and, and design-based practice is that inevitably the designer is dissipated and the ability to focus on particular projects goes when you get bigger we we got a little bit bigger at one point and I wasn't enjoying it as much so I think this scale works for us as an office and we've certainly partnered up on a number of occasions when we need to and and that seems to work as well yeah I speak to a lot of architects that small practices, maybe they're just a sole practitioner or it might be a couple and they're thinking about, they feel that pressure to grow the the practice, employ people, take on more and more projects because I think they feel that that will make the practice more financially more comfortable because it's difficult when you're sort of in those early years. And it's seen as hiring and, and growing is kind of the way to get to a sustainable position financially with the practice. But there must, there's other ways to go about it, right? Do you think that there's a key factor in terms of how you view fees or how you structure fees or, or, or something to focus on or that you prioritise that sort of makes sense as a business to sort of stay at that scale without feeling this pressure to take on bigger and bigger projects, more projects, just because of the size of the office? The question is scale. If you're comfortable with whatever scale you make for yourself as a as a an entity, then that's a good thing. So you might be comfortable with 200 people. I, I look mm. at that as 200 mortgages that I've got to pay. Yeah. So I think yeah. um, small micro businesses like mine are all about cash flow anyway. You can't keep the door open if you don't have enough cash flow to to pay the bills each month. And there, there's an efficiency that that has evolved in my office. I mean. It's it's not just me. Hales is like a tour de force. She's she mm. does a huge amount of heavy lifting as well. And then, as I said before, when we need more, we know more people. I people groan when I use the Rolling Stones analogy, but I think of us like the Rolling Stones, where it's Mick and Keith doing the creative yeah. stuff, and um, and then we can pull in the rest of the band if we need to do it, go on a tour. It's that kind of yeah. kind of structure, but that's taken decades to get to. The burden of practice now for all practitioners, small or big, is what I said before. It's cash flow and the speed of cash flow, the demands of all of the requirements and reporting requirements. 
um, uh, are a burden. So we have, you know, we have a part-time bookkeeper to do all that stuff. The way that works, you know, it can probably be, be done better, but it, it seems to seems to work. And the metric for, for that is is the quality of work that we produce. It's not to say it's easy, but um, I guess I can point to the scoreboard and say, look what we've done. So Yeah. And when you're looking to work on a bigger project and you're thinking about partnering up with a larger practice, as you mentioned earlier, is it something where the client and the project comes first to you and then you kind of go through this process of selecting, okay, what would be the practice that we that we'd be looking to here? Or would that typically be something that the client would be thinking about and they're kind of viewing, oh, well, who should we kind of part, you know, how, how does that kind of roll out usually? Typically it's the client. I mean, we couldn't have done the design hub without partnering up with Pedalthorpe. And at yep. the time my brother was working at Pedalthorpe, so we had an inside man at Pedals and, and that and that helped form a team and the the importance of team building can't be overstated. So we had a great team and we had really talented people from their office and my office. I think at that time we were about five people. Um, and we we created this really dynamic little little group that produced a wonderful building. So the, there's an inherent risk with that structure too, and it's a more complex scenario than a single mm. practice. But a client with vision and, and courage can take that sort of thing on. Yeah. Interested in talking about clients actually, just in terms of how selective you are and your selective focus on the clients that you that you do pick. And I guess it's firstly, is it kind of selecting the client or selecting the project or a bit of both? Uh, and I suppose also just what some of the criteria that, that you kind of look at as a as a really classic Sean Godsell client, that's that's the perfect dream client for us. Uh, uh, I feel like that question's based on a myth and I'm about to debunk the myth. Please debunk if, it. That's if, great. Do it. If only I was in a position where I could select clients, I think Ooh, that um, I run an office where I, I, I wait for the phone to ring and I hope someone wants the work that I do, but I've never been in the in the in the luxurious position of being able to pick and choose clients. I, I, I'm grateful to get work, usually of any scale, um, and I'm privileged that someone might consider engaging me. So um, I'd, I'd, I guess I'd love to be in that position. I'm not sure who on the planet is. Um, where, where I can pick and choose and define what constitutes a good client. Good clients um, are courageous and they have the ability to commit to the architect. I find when a, a client commits, my return commitment is twofold because I'm empowered by that commitment to do my, my best work. So I always feel encouraged by a client who understands the work of the office, where we're coming from as a practice and is prepared to trust that. And yeah. That, that's important in making good architecture. And, and in the kind of debunking of that myth, and I think this this is interesting because I think so many architects and directors talk pretty much on and on about the importance of client selection, right? Like this is something they talk about. It's all about kind of making sure you're picking the right client. They have all these conversations about we get inquiries and they're a bad fit and it's about it's about weeding out the people that aren't, you know, ideal for the studio. And there's this whole kind of conversation that goes on. Um, 
Yeah. So clearly you're just going, Hey, that's, that's not the situation. That's not how we look at it. And, and it's not how it goes in reality, which I think is really fascinating. Well, in my acceptance speech for the gold medal this year, I, I made a point of saying that, you know, I've never hocked myself on the curb, I think was the expression I, I use that one thing we don't do is we, as an office is we, we don't have a PR company spruiking our wares. Mm. We don't go on the front foot and seek out work. We rely on reputation and hope that um, hope that the phone rings. So that means that there's plenty of times where the phone doesn't ring and, and not a lot of work's being done, which is one of the explanations as to why the body of work isn't as big as some other firms mm. with similar reputations. But that's that's a that's a choice. It's a tough choice because it's a self-imposed form of isolation um, but at the same time um, it's one that uh, allows a degree of integrity in the way we operate and in the work that we do. So do you feel that the integrity and the work that you are able to create from that and then you're kind of stepped back quiet isolated as you described it sort of posture to marketing communications PR all that sort of stuff that you you sort of sit out from that and you go if it's meant to be it's meant to be we'll wait for the phone to ring the client will come along if we're doing the right work do you think those two things just go hand in hand like that's the sort of the strategy there that it, it's part of the environment that allows you to create your best work that you're not going out and sort of hocking yourself on the curb, as you put it? I think the job has to find the architect, not the other way around. And, yeah. And that's, that's a higher risk strategy than mm. chasing down potential clients and, and accepting the repercussions of something that doesn't turn out to be a good fit. That's not to say that everyone who comes through the door ends up getting a building from us either. It it's a leap of faith and a successful project only comes from that leap. And if the, there's hesitancy from either party, then typically you're probably not going to get a great building. And I've been quoted as saying before that great architecture can only happen when there's a great client. And I, I absolutely believe that. Yeah. And so that kind of comes back to that commitment that they don't have the hesitancy, they're committed, they're just deeply invested in your work. They, they appreciate it, love it, the work that your studio does. They're committed, they're ready to go. Uh, if you're, you're not pushing them, you're not trying to sort of get their enthusiasm up, get their project happening quicker, your, your entire thing is just, okay, just let it be and just let them kind of come to us, bring their sort of energy and enthusiasm and commitment. And then if it goes ahead, that's a sign that they were committed and serious. We didn't we didn't try and sell sell them into, you know, working with the studio like so many studios can once when they feel that they need to get that work in constantly. Oh, that's right. And I mean, there's a good old aphorism out there, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And I think if you try too hard to chase down a possible client, then, then you have to accept all, all of the repercussions that come with that pursuit. Mm. If the project's meant to be, it'll be, and that's a much healthier philosophy, I think. It's not, not a fashionable one. It's not a, a, no. not, a, not a one that many people are prepared to live by. It's got to put bread on your table as well, but I think it protects the work and it protects the integrity of the office. It takes people a lot of practice and experience to develop the sort of 
intestinal fortitude to deal with those quiet periods where the phone doesn't ring for a couple of months. And some people, they, they feel that the, the pipeline is dry, drying up, so to speak, and it's been two weeks since the phone's rung and all of a sudden they want to change their strategy and do something different and start going out and spruiking themselves all, as much as they can. But other people, such as yourself, it sounds like can really just sit there and just tough it out and wait a longer period of time. Are you are you like the the camel of 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 waiting for inquiries? You can you can you can go a couple of months and you're not you're not totally sweating. Like in the I'm probably not so much now, but in the past, is, have you gone through those periods and just toughed it out? Many times, it's terrifying. Yeah. In the days when I had a mortgage and school fees to pay, mm. it was triply terrifying. Um, it's a roller coaster. The work comes and it doesn't come, and sometimes it comes from places that you're not expecting. But that's not to say that that's easy when when there is no work and when um, bills are mounting up. That's scary. Anyone who said otherwise isn't being truthful about it. It's scary, but I guess it's how do you then react or respond to that, right? Like if you completely tried to change your entire approach and become the big you know, PR architect overnight, that would um, obviously, and, and changed your approach to waiting for the right client and so on, that would, it would probably jeopardize your approach in so many different ways, right? So it's it's just about sticking the commitment to the strategy that you've just focused on and you're just doing it your way and sticking to it. And that's, that's pretty tough. I'd probably have more money, but I wouldn't necessarily be richer. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can measure success in architecture simply by the number of commissions. It's it's more about whether the, the buildings that you do do are any good or not. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I know a lot of my colleagues who've gone the other way and sort of scratch their head and wonder why they, they're not satisfied. Sometimes it feels that you need to create, I used the word environment earlier, you need to kind of create the right environment for you to do good work. And sometimes it seems like that may, means making difficult choices or putting constraints on how you approach things or could approach things. You're, you have a slightly constrained approach to how you promote yourself and your work. You, you're pretty disciplined about not not rushing out into the sales stuff like, like we touched on earlier. But it does feel like those are creating the right conditions. And it's, it's in, I guess, intentional right to go, that's the approach. And it's all about just keeping the focus on on the work because that's what's going to ultimately drive everything, which sounds sounds so obvious, but I guess you look around at what architects do and how they approach business and their work, and sometimes it's the work that ends up being the thing that gets sacrificed for some of the other areas. So it isn't it isn't common, right? It's it's not the norm. So just interested in that. Well, time time's a big factor in making a building, and if you're mm. on a tight fee and you've got a lot of staff to feed on on the back of the project, then the only thing you can do in any sized office is limit the time spent on the project. And one of the secret recipes in my office is we don't put a time limit on the project. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that we keep going long after a commercial practice would say, no, you've got to complete that. And that that's a, a burden in one sense, but it, it also explains the thoroughness of the buildings. So we mm. do things slowly. We try to do them really well. And as I said in my talk this year for the gold medal, we try to make each project a little bit better than the previous one. And so that means that there's a fairly high degree of self-criticism going on as well. You know, what did we get right in that project, what did we get wrong? How can mm. we make 
those little things better um, for ourselves and for our clients. So I think it's probably a different approach than most offices and I think you can only do that when you're small. I think big precludes the option or the choice of devoting endless time to something and therein lies my aversion to large practice per se. I would find it frustrating being a director of a large practice feeling like I couldn't keep going because yep. I knew you that to, I had... You have to stop there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew I had that many salaries to pay each month. In terms of where the, those those clients that do find their way to you because you're not you're not going out there, they're coming, they're coming to you. When you usually hear that sort of thing, it, people mention word of mouth and, you know, one client talks to the other, talks to the other, and that's kind of what can be that where those clients can kind of come in from and those projects can come from. But you've also got this other area of where you aren't isolated as much in in putting yourself out there, but it's, you know, books, publications, exhibitions, talks, all those sorts of things. Do you find that those things lead towards or contribute to getting projects to work on as well? Or are those just a completely separate thing and it's really just word of mouth and recommendation and that sort of thing that gets clients? It's word of mouth and recommendation. I mean, the publications, I don't know whether I've ever received a commission from a publication and we've been published around the world a hundred times. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a source of um, recognition and it builds reputation, but it doesn't necessarily equate to work. The more likely source is someone saying what a happy outcome it was. And I, and I think that those two realities are also linked to a third, which is to, to go back to what I said before, we don't have a PR company promoting us. So there's a, a degree or, or a perception of exclusivity there, and that can that can contribute to interest in commissioning. That's a, a risky strategy. but <laughs> Well, I, when you were just sort of describing the approach that you take, um, I was thinking in my mind, oh, that's, yeah, very exclusivity-driven strategy or that's the, that's the kind of, um, the, I suppose, the optics of it from a client's standpoint. But I was a little unsure about bringing it up because I think it kind of exclusivity can sometimes be used a bit cynically as a as a as a marketing tactic that can end up just being a bit inauthentic a lot of businesses will try and create sort of false exclusivity or or try and make the impression of it without it actually being there but you in your case you know it, it is genuine exclusivity you're you're a very small practice with a lot of recognition and and a and a big client base of people who are recommending you hopefully over the years and all those sorts of things so it's interesting to hear you bring it up because do you feel that that sort of is an important factor of how the studio is seen and something that helps you to um, attract the, again, I keep saying attract the right client because, it, but helps the right client find their way to you is this sense that they, that they respond well to that sense of exclusivity and that slowness and quietness of the studio. I think often new clients are surprised that I answer the phone, I empty the bin so does Hales occasionally, but yep. they're, they're surprised. People are surprised that we're so small. Yep. People are surprised that I'm accessible mm-hmm. and that mythology that has, has been built up around my office is, is really quickly removed when they start working mm-hmm. with us as an office. I mean, all we're interested in as an office is doing good work for our clients. 
yeah. all the other stuff that comes along comes along on the back of other people saying, well, that is actually good work. Yeah. yeah personally, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm still trying to do a decent building. I don't know whether I've done one yet. I'm not happy with anything ever that I do. I just think I can always do a bit better. Yeah. So I think that dedication to doing good work is really what the office is about. All the other stuff is fantasy, really. Where, where do you think, you mentioned the mythology, I think a couple of times and you talked a little bit about it in your in your gold medal talk there when when we'll get on to something I guess a little bit later about your kind of relationship with clients and it's one of those things that people are surprised by but you've you bring up the mythology and it's so true I think there is this mythology or this sense that your practice is a certain way or, or operates a certain way or you're maybe this well as a well-known recognized architect that there must be you know people have these conceptions about what a star architects like how do they behave they're you know, they're inaccessible, they don't take the bin out. <laughs> Those things you mentioned were spot on. Like where does this where does this stuff come from? This this weird mythology that just builds up when, you know, you're just there doing your thing and then this is this is suddenly the way people are seeing you. Is it just how they see architects that are doing recognized work? I'm not I'm not sure. I'd love I'd love your insight. Oh, I think humans love rumor and they love starting rumors and they love perpetuating rumors. So um, I've heard some amazing rumours about me in my office and they're not based in fact and people have gone to extremes in, in terms of creating rumours um, and it's, it can be vitriolic and mm. it's, it, I think a lot of it comes from envy or mm. jealousy and I think that the facts always speak for themselves. So, you know, I don't, I try not to respond to much of that stuff. Sometimes it's yeah. impossible. Occasionally you have to correct things that are, are misrepresenting the office. But Australia, we have the tall poppy. We, mm. As soon as someone sticks their head up, they get chopped down. And, yeah. and, and yeah. that's that's why we keep the door closed mm. and, and put our heads down and work. It's the only sensible response. If I believed everything I've heard and read, I, yeah. I'd be a nervous wreck. Yeah, you, you spoke about in the gold medal talk, the really importance early on of, or I think it's just this sense of how blown away you were to have your work featured in an international publication of architecture at the time where the editorial decisions or the, the, the people there were really a good judge of quality work and that was such a such an amazing form of recognition. But you mentioned then the other side of it is the self-publishing and I guess referring to this idea that I actually no, I'd love you to speak more to that. I suppose the I guess the the danger or or damage that's done as you see it by practices. I guess self-publishing in the sense of um, putting their work out there on social media for the whole world to see the website. So stuff that sort of every practice is doing now. But you touched on in your talk that you think that there's actually a downside to that. Could you could you speak to that a little bit more? Because I think it was a really interesting point. My sense of that is that that imagery motivates. And imagery is not architecture. Imagery mm. is imagery. And the reality is that um, that that's the wrong reason. You know, if it looks good on Instagram, that's the wrong reason to mm. be doing something. And yet it's a motivating factor. The fact that you can put together and publish a document now on, on your desktop in your office that passes for a book doesn't mean your work is worthy enough to be in a book and and that lack of value judgment is terrifying 
And the, the abundance of imagery that's available now is, is um, I think I use the term bombarded yeah. um, in, the, in my talk, is, is so overwhelming that it's impossible to intelligently assess the work behind the image. So much so that architecture has become this blancmange of imagery. It's interesting that there's no position associated with the image typically other than it looks good in the opinion of the, the author. Looks looks yeah. good. Yeah, and I had John Gullings on a few episodes back, and he said pretty much the same thing <laughs> in terms of um, that he was sort of sensing that photography had kind of gone the direction of it's about trying to create the beautiful image, and it really is kind of losing any connection with the building in a sense. And that that that's the, the I guess the whole in his eyes the whole point of architectural photography in terms of what it tries to do as far as documenting the building is is sort of not happening now. It's not the way people are approaching things. And so it sort of reminds me a little bit of what you're saying in terms of it's about the good looking image. Do you, do you think that's having both a negative effect on the the public, like trying to learn about and understand architecture as in potential clients and, and, and the public in general, architects themselves, do you feel like they're starting, to, they're maybe through that bombardment kind of losing a sense of what good work is because they're not looking to uh, expert judges to help sort of make the decisions about kind of what work is good and what isn't, I guess, just is, is it basically affecting everybody. Well, we're doing it now, aren't we? We're talking about images. That's, mm. that's not, not what we should be talking about. We should be talking about mm. things like climate, but we're talking about the sort of complete and utter consumption of architectural debate around the image. And, and it, it probably doesn't doesn't even warrant the time we spent on it others other than to say that I guess every architect thinks what they do is great. It's not really I don't it's not for me to say I think I've got ideas and I think I've got a clear philosophical position and I think I have a clear theory and I try to make a building but then I'll leave it leave it to other people to assess what I've done and to verify mm. whether or not what I've said I've done is what I've actually done. But if yeah. I do that all myself, it, there's no there's no distance on that observation yeah. or commentary, so it's it's meaningless. Yeah. Can I ask one more question on images before we move yeah, sure. on? <laughs> I got the feeling that in your talk, you were talking about it from the perspective of that was really helpful to you to get that feedback on your work, uh, and and you were kind of raising this idea that putting yourself in the shoes of a younger architect, where there may be they're not getting that clear expert feedback of what's really good and what isn't, what what deserves recognition, what doesn't, but they're just getting, they're just part of the bombardment and noise of images. You can convince yourself that what you're doing is looking good. If you get a lot of likes, what you're doing must be good, but it could be, you know, it's not really telling you anything. There's a lot of, there's a signal and noise issue, it sounds like. And I think you're, you're kind of getting at it from the point of it. it's harder to actually develop your skills as an architect when you're not getting that feedback. That was what I kind of picked up on. Is that kind of roughly what you were speaking to? I don't know whether it's about developing skills. It, it, it probably mm. endorses the direction you're, you're going in. I mm. mean, if someone like Francesco Del Co or Ken Frampton or, or someone like that sees your work, out of the thousands of buildings that they get to see, then there's something about your work that's catching their eye and their eye is trained to see good work. And so that suggests that maybe you go, you're going in, in a good direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's all. And then... That makes sense. Then, then it's up to you to keep 
going in that direction. You know, you might exhaust an investigation into a particular subject or topic in architecture and then change directions. Um, so I, I, I think that's been really important for me, but um, it, it's not certainly not the motivating thing. It's, mm, it's, mm, a, mm. It's, it's a thing that falls out of, as I said before, just trying to do good work. Yeah. Going back to something you raised earlier about trying to do a little bit better with each project, that was also something that came through in your talk where you were sort of showing the evolution of a, a particular idea expressing itself through a little bit differently with each project as you started to develop the idea more and sort of treating each project as an opportunity to experiment a little bit. What if we did that a little bit differently? And that was that was the impression I got. But I think it's interesting tying into this myth, going back to debunking myths about architects, this idea of a style or this, this, this idea that there's common threads through the work and how somehow that is sometimes looked on as a negative thing or somebody doesn't want to wear that, they go, I don't want to be seen as having a certain style as an architect. I prefer to just do it every project differently. And of course, we're doing every project differently depending on the client. But I'd love your thoughts on this idea of finding these consistent threads through the work that do sometimes make them look like there is a story between projects, which I think is a positive thing, versus this notion of style or doing one thing or repetitiveness or something like that. Well, I think... <laughs> I, I certainly know that in my case, I don't. I've never sat down and said, "Now I must develop a style," or yeah. I, I, I must. Yeah. Other people want to pigeonhole. I, I'm not motivated by that. So, in the case of my work, it's 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 logical that one building progresses from the next, and if something's investigated and discovered and and works in a building, why wouldn't you keep it? So there's a collegial nature in, in the buildings. They're, they're all part of a group because one comes from the next and you see that in the detail, obviously, but also in the, th in the thought process behind the way a building might be configured. But it's not, a, it's not a conscious attempt to develop a style. That's other people. It's not me. Yeah. I, don't know yeah. what, I, I, I don't know what my style is. I think I know what, why the buildings are the way they are, but I don't yep. think of it as a style. And I think, again, I think that that threatens people. They see a consistency in work. They see, um, again, a rigour in the work. I mean, if you were to make that comment to someone like Tadeo Ando, he'd fall off his chair laughing. <laughs> so he'd just say, well... I'm doing what I, I like to do. I like concrete as a material. We've talked yeah. about that in the office before and consoled ourselves with, you know, the work of someone like Picasso repeating the same portrait of somebody over and over again. It's never exactly the same. Yeah. But he, he might have done the, the same subject over and over. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't, no. doesn't it shouldn't mean anything negative at all. And in the case of yeah. Ando... One of the great architects of the last hundred years, at least. Um, it's it's remarkable how refined his um, recent work is compared to his very early work. Just in the investigation of a single material. I mean, I find that mm. quite extraordinary work, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, this conversation or this topic's come up a couple of times with different architects on the on the podcast, uh, talking about how in 
in other disciplines, in, in art, Picasso example, in, fa- in fashion, designers will have certain just little signatures, little details that occasionally you'll see reoccurring motifs in their work. And it's something that we as humans look at and we admire it and respect it and it helps us to understand their work and see the the bigger picture of what they're doing. So I always think of it as a really positive thing when that's uh, that's something that's appearing in the work. But do you have any sense of why, I guess it's hard to imagine why other people sort of think about it a certain way, but when, when people are resistant to that idea or they want to kind of go against it or say, no, we're not about that, is that just is that coming maybe from a bit of vulnerability that we kind of yeah, don't have it, ideas? I think, or it, that- I think it's a it's profoundly insecure, uh, yeah. and I I think if you if you you're an architect and you think everything I I do every time I do a building it has to be really different from the last one and you know really interesting then you you basically you're screwed because no. you you're never going to have that many ideas. And you're probably going to develop a, a, a sort of gibberish language out of desperation. And, and there's nothing worse than a building that's obviously trying to be desperately interesting. Um, <laughs> it, it always falls flat. And, and my advice to those architects is get over yourself, relax, yep. just try one idea over a few projects and see how you go. Um, yeah. But I know that there, I know that there's a, a cohort out there who level that allegation at me, and um, I can tell you that that, that I'm really not hearing what they're saying because I don't think it has yeah. much value. When when you're when you're preparing for your talks uh, or, or developing a new talks, does your process begin with writing? Do you do you kind of write first, or are those sort of is writing and, and working on essays and other things, and then also, and preparing talks? Are they sort of two separate processes for you, or how do you how do you where do these ideas start to develop for you? Um, I suppose while you're working on your projects, I imagine, but in terms of how you actually articulate that to people or to an audience, I think for me, writing is really important, and I and it comes and goes. If I'm feeling weary with you know, making a building or documenting a building, I often find that I'm drawn to writing because it's a different medium and it's it's a way of clarifying my thinking. So it's important and it always has been that that I'm able to articulate why the hell the building is like it is it adds value and gravitas to the, the building itself. Mm. Um, and... Preparing a talk, like preparing that talk for India, I've nuanced the talk over the weekend. I've put together a a slightly different bunch of um, slides to go with the talk this morning. I practised the talk this morning. Talk's a bit more like making a building. You've got to Mm. structure it up and... But uh, especially online, I, I, I'm most happy when I'm talking, when I'm, I'm just, you know, someone asks me to talk about a particular project and I start giving back the story. Yeah. But writing is valuable as well because it allows you to review, um, to analyse and also take, can take you, you can take, go off topic a little bit and go to a particular sort of thing and and explore it without the burden of making a building about it yeah so i find that really valuable and you know linked to that is obviously reading and the only the only publication i subscribed i don't subscribe to any architectural publications Mm. i subscribe to the new yorker it's the only only publication the writing and the articles are so informative 
I, I think yeah. I think to be a good architect, you have to expose yourself to a lot of things, not just architecture. The answer to architecture is never in architecture. It's always outside of it. And, and then architecture provides a, a vehicle or a medium to express an idea that's to do with how we live. So if you're looking for the answers in architecture, you're really looking in the wrong spot if you're trying to make a building. They're usually not there yeah. except in in your knowledge of the history of architecture. That's a different thing. Yeah. I think you're like the third guest on the podcast to mention that they subscribe to the New Yorker. So there must yeah. be something there must be something special <laughs> that, that I need to I need to go subscribe to that one and find out what you're all doing because oh, yeah, there's I'll, something, I'll tell you, there's something it's there. No, no spelling mistakes and no editorial errors. Perfect. It's so a perfectly it put together quality document. Okay, perfect. I, we don't want to go back to images, but just this idea of talking about outside, looking outside of architecture and not looking at architecture and what, what all the other architects are doing and all the buildings that are being published and stuff like that. It does remind me of what we were discussing earlier in your talk, which we were talking about, again, that bombardment that a sort of a separate aspect to it or an issue with it is that it starts to, I think, I think you kind of mentioned it sort of infiltrates your thinking or your creativity as a designer or your imagination. It kind of deadens your imagination a little bit being exposed to just this fire hose of imagery. And then, so in terms of your consumption of stuff, you, you try and stay away from other architecture and avoid it. Right. And is that, is that, have we finally gotten one of your other secret recipes? Is it don't look at architecture? Is that the other one? Lots of time and then don't, don't look at other architecture. Well, I do look at other architects, but I, I look at the architects that I know whose mm. work is worth looking at. So there's, there's not that many of them. So I think architecture is yeah. like golf, you know, you, you, in golf you, you worry about your shot and you have yeah. to try to hit your best shot. And if in a, in a tournament or a competition and, a, and a, one of the other golfers hits a really good shot, you have to say good shot. Yep. Um, well played. You can't, you can't go out over and, and belt them one or you shouldn't. <laughs> so you just have to let them play their shot. And if they play a bad shot, you don't, probably don't say anything. Yep. Yeah. Or you say better luck next time or, or whatever. But if you stop worrying about your shot and start, start worrying about all the other golfers and their shot, then you're completely cooked and you'll, you'll struggle to make contact with the ball. So yeah, I think absolutely. that's a nice analogy for that issue that I rarely, rarely seek out other, other people's work but I know who I'm looking looking at when I do. Mm. Outside of the New Yorker, I mean, what's your process for finding the work of other people you like? Do they just send it to you? One of the first hurdles for a young architect to get over is to work out what it is you like and why it is you like it. You know, what, why do you find something beautiful and something else not beautiful? And that, that immediately takes the question of style out of the conversation because what mm. I like and what I think is beautiful, the next architect won't like. So we know that we're, we're, we're interesting because we're different in that sense, in that part mm. discussion. But I think if you don't know what you lo- like or don't know what you don't like, and just talk about materials, if you, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever done a building, a brick building. It's not that I don't like bricks, it's just I don't want to do buildings out of bricks. So I think they're an, an old-fashioned material. I think we've moved on past the brick. 
It's not to say that mm. brick buildings aren't pleasant. They, they are. I grew up in a brick building, but you know. So and I know and I know why I, I don't. I'm not drawn to that. So that informs me. And if I can link that to a good knowledge of history and the history of architecture, then I can trace what I'm doing back. And therefore, I don't need what's going on now. I'm yeah. more interested in breakthroughs in materials or you know breakthroughs in you know, glazing techniques or construction methodologies. You know, I'm really interested in the fact that we can print buildings now. That That's interesting to me. Far more interesting than, than what, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my colleagues are knocking up at the moment. So mm, I just, mm, I think it's about where you're looking, not, not who you're looking at necessarily. Yeah. 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 Going back to the writing, I think the trying to understand yourself better, that was, when you're when you're sort of talking about understand why you like what 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 you find beautiful why you find it beautiful I f- I get the feeling that writing and reading as a process would be helpful in crystallizing that and helping to actually draw that out as a as a habit and I think when when people are talking about uh, writing I think these days they think oh to share online you know to share on Instagram or to share on the blog or something like that but. Just to be clear, when we when we talk about you you writing, it's just for your own process, right? Are you sharing any of that writing that you're doing in any anywhere at all? Or yeah, a lot of those essays that I write have been published, but not mm. online. They're published in mm-hmm. publications. Yeah, um, and I think you know I apply the same metric to the writing as I do to the buildings. If someone asks me to write about something then I you know I'll take it seriously I I won't just dump something online first first of all I like I like grammar and spelling to be right so (laughs) I I see a lot of stuff thrown online that's not even proofread you know so yeah yeah absolutely Going back to another myth, because I love these ideas of these myths. One of the myths that you busted in the Q&A section of your gold medal talk, and I just love it, busting these myths, was something about the architect-client relationship, which I think was a really uh, an interesting thing that you you obviously had very, very strong feelings about. It's kind of a misconception that I think, yeah, I'm trying to remember how you kind of put it, but something that we kind of like basically hold the client down and sort of go, here's the design and kind of force feed it to them and uh, really like, you know, we're, we're the boss in the relationship and the client gets what they're given kind of thing. That that's the myth. That's maybe the misconception about what people would maybe expect if they walked into a studio like yours and you were talking about how it really couldn't be further from it. So I guess, can you help me debunk this one, please, Sean? Let's 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 make sure they're all done by the end. I think... Um I think the phrase I used was people People are under the misconception that I get the client in a headlock and keep them in yeah. the headlock till they give in and, and do what I'm telling them to do and it's, yeah. it's absolutely the opposite. I mean, to make a building you need a, to build it, you need to build a team. The client is, is an essential part of the team. The methodology that we have always employed in the office is that the client is directly involved in the design process and, and actively involved, hands-on involved. We have a design methodology that involves attrition. So um, the client might come in with a brief, we might visit the site and then we might start producing four or five or six options for the site and they might all be different. 
and through a s series of conversations and debates, you know, four of the six options might fall off the table during schematic design and there might be a couple left and, and all the extraneous forces on that process come into play, budget, feasibility, planning and so on. And then ultimately there's a, a, an option on the table that by that stage the client has full ownership of because they've participated in all of the reasons why that option stays on the table. And it, it, that's a liberating moment in the in the architect-client relationship because it, it's an endorsement to keep going with a diagram of a building that the client knows and understands. And therefore, from that point on, there are probably no surprises. Nothing, nothing other than improvements can come from that methodology. And I think it it's it's a successful way of doing it. You know, it, it, we did the same thing with the design hub on a large scale. The, the design hub came out of that methodology, and the, in that instance, the university vice chancellor owned, owned that outcome. And I think that uh, a lot of those suppositions go back to the rumor and innuendo that comes with the Territory in my office that people mm. can't believe that they couldn't achieve the same thing with their client. They set out with yep. a severely, you know, clinical idea, for example, and they couldn't get it over the line and what they ended up with was a, was a dog's breakfast. Well, yep. maybe they were just using the wrong methodology. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. And I yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't even feel like it's something specific about, about your studio. I think... I think with some of, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, you have a better idea of what other people think of the studio, but I think it's just whenever people think about highly accomplished architects doing very well recognized work, there's just, they see the quality of that work, or maybe it's not even to do with the architect. They just see very, very high quality architecture and they go, well, I'm not producing that at the moment, or my work's not being recognized in that way. Uh, so there must be reasons that they're doing that and I'm not. So some of those reasons are they must be controlling their client. They must have these pushover clients that will come in and just, get, you know, do all that stuff, uh, not involved in the process. If the client's involved, then that's obviously going to make the project a dog's breakfast. Uh, all these, you know, go down the line, all these different assumptions you'd make to try and make a scenario where you think, oh, they're sort of cheating. You know, they're not playing by the same rules that I'm playing by and that's why their work's better and mine isn't. But I, th I think people have that perception about architects, uh, really accomplished architects. It's not you individually. It's just any architect that's getting a high level of recognition. I think sometimes there's that tall poppy thing of going, well, they must they must have special circumstances or get away with something that I can't, right? But it's well, not did, the right way did, to go. Or they say, how did you get away with that? How did you get your client to do that? Well, Yeah, right. You must get that one a bit, right? You must get sick of that question. Yeah, it's sort of the answer is I have a good methodology, and mm. the client understands what's going on. I mean, architecture is not linear. It, only, only a fool as an architect thinks that you can get from A to B with your concept intact. I mean, our schools teach that methodology because they, they run a design studio where you go from A to B. It's really dumb mm. and practice isn't like that. So your great concept can be knocked out of the park with something fundamentally banal, like the client says, where do I put the, the rubbish bins, you know, and, and you go, oops, I forgot. Oh, no, that's, oh, dear, oh, gosh, and the whole building goes down the toilet. 
And so, you know, you, you either learn from that or, you, you, or you, you turn to an office like mine and others and say, how, how are you getting away with that? There's no rocket science in that. It's just, just good practice versus poor practice, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have any any final thoughts or I mean on the topics that we've been discussing and some of the different ways we've looked at it, is there anything else that's on your mind or that you know you've got you want to get off your chest about the industry or <laughs> anything? <laughs> any any final any final thoughts or anything that's sprung to mind since we've been discussing some of these other areas? Uh, I think the reality my reality is that I'm completely and utterly terrified every time I do a building and I'm I'm operating under a, a degree of fear that I get something wrong, don't do the best I could do, miss something, and that fear keeps me focused. And um, it's always been that way and I hope it always will be that way because if I take my eye off the ball, then I'll get hit <laughs> and I don't want to be hit. So. I think that that's a reality of practice. Mm. You can't assume anything and you can't presume anything about making a building. And every single building is like doing it for the first time. And you can't hope that just because you've done it successfully for decades that you'll keep doing it that way. So I think that's an important, especially for young architects to hear, that's an important thing to know that Sure, things might be more familiar as you get older, but you can't assume one thing in making a building. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Sean Godsell. If you'd like to learn more about Sean and his work, you can visit seangodsell.com or follow the studio on Instagram at seangodsellarchitects. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.